How's everybody feeling now that we're starting November of 2020? This year that, uh, you know, the, the 2020 just made it such a, uh, you know, uh, an ideal, seemingly ideal year. We had a lot of um, expectations. Uh, again, I, I kind of laughed at myself, but I stood up here at the beginning of the year and said, you know, the best um, is yet to come. Of course, we've still got a lot, got some time to see the best, but we have been blessed this year nonetheless. <laughs> Um, not to make light, um, throughout all that we've been through together, we've been through it together, right? And that is a blessing in and of itself. Um, but uh, I really believe that we got a lot to look forward to. Of course, you know, there's Thanksgiving uh, in just a few weeks, which, you know, that's uh, uh, everybody's uh, favorite meal of the year, multiple meals of the year. That's the day you eat um, dinner or supper, whatever you call it. That's the day you eat um, three or four of those, right? <laughs> um, uh, and then, of course, there's Christmas. Uh, we'll be here before we know it. But this week, um, it, it's almost like we can't get excited for all that because we've, we've got some other things that we got to get through before we get to um, those, um, you know, awesome holidays. Um, you know, obviously there's COVID. We're still dealing with that, um, which, you know, I don't know about y'all, but, you know, it's canceled and it's changed so much this year. It's kind of hard to get excited for anything because you don't know, um, you know, what's going to be, you know, tweaked or altered or changed or delayed or canceled. You can't cancel delay or cancel holidays, but, you know, all the, all the, uh, the things that we've been challenged with. But there's that other thing that's been looming large. It's been weighing on uh, everybody, and, and while it's not a deadly disease, there are times that you could classify it as a virus too, um, because it can bring out the worst in people, uh, and it divides us sometimes as a nation. It leaves us dejected and demoralized, even when we win. Uh, it leaves us wondering if we really won, uh, and, and of course, I'm talking about election season uh, and the whole political gambit that goes along with it, which uh, it feels like we just stay in election season in our country nowadays, right? Um, there's, there's just election season. It's, it never ends. The, the one election ends and it's time to get ready for the next one or not get over the last one. So it's just kind of a cycle that we were just stuck in, right? Um, and uh, uh, the, season's, the season is supposed to come to an end Tuesday. We hope that it does and we can get some, breathe a little bit and uh, start to uh, just to pray and, and get ready for what's next. But, um, you know, of course, who am I kidding? It never ends. Uh, but at least the election is this Tuesday. And, uh, you know, we kind of make election season its own holiday in our country. We put up decorations. You know, you drive by any corner on the street and there's just thousands and thousands of signs. I felt so bad for um, all the people that put those signs out because the other day when the hurricane, you know, came through or the wind came through, all those signs got blew away. And I thought, yeah, if it just would have been a week later, it could have just blew them away and it could have stayed away. Um, maybe some of them needed to stay away, you know, a week before. Who knows? But, uh, um, you know, I felt bad for people. I saw people putting them back up and I'm thinking, you know what? They are just just, you know, just perfect pictures of, of faithful um, to their calls um, as they put the signs back up. But, you know, like any holiday, uh, you know, we have decorations and things that we put out um, for, uh, for Christmas, for, for even for Thanksgiving, for Halloween. And election season is no different. Uh, and, and some things, like any holiday, some things can be saved and reused. Uh, right? I mean, some elections, you know, you go four years later and you can take those same decorations that you used um, in the previous season. Let's go to the first slide. Uh, and you can use them again, right? You can use it for one election. You can use it for another election. And we had obviously two back-to-back -back presidential uh, candidates that won their first term and could just reuse those same signs the next time if they wanted to. And they were successful in reusing those signs and getting the votes. But some stuff though, 
you know, like with decorations at Christmas and other seasons, some things, you know, styles change and trends change, and it's best that we put those decorations and forget about them. And you can go online and you can find hundreds and hundreds of campaign logos of failed candidates that ran and made a big go for it, but they just ultimately didn't make it. And those signs are tucked away, and especially if you put the year after them, because that's really boxing you into one, one year. Uh, those signs are tucked away and never to be remembered again. Just like some decorations that you bring out for one year and you thought it was a good idea and maybe it wasn't really received that well. Um, then again, though, some of you have Christmas decorations and holiday decorations that you've used for decades, right? You just keep reusing them. And in fact, there's been some candidates in the uh, history of our country that they just wouldn't stop running. They didn't stop losing, but they just would not stop running. This guy um, is a uh, old-timer from back in the early 1900s. Maybe you've heard of him before. His name was Eugene V. Debs. He ran four times for president as an independent. Um, he was part of a workers' socialist party back in the early 1900s for some of the labor unions that were getting started up. But this gentleman ran for uh, president four times. The last time he ran from prison, um, it was an early Red Scare. They thought he was a Russian plant, and we're still dealing with Russia all these years later, so, you know, nothing changes. But this guy ran for prison four times, ran from, uh, ran from, ran from president four times, ran from prison the last time, got over a million votes, but he did not win the election. I believe uh, Calvin Coolidge um, did, right? Yeah, yeah, Calvin Coolidge won that one. So, um, but again, like most holidays, there are winners and there are losers, and I think that goes for every holiday. On Thanksgiving, you gain weight, so that's a win or lose, right? Maybe both. Um, you, on Christmas, you lose money, and that's a loss, but then you gain presents, and then you, you know, that that's kind of a, a cancels out the other, right? Uh, but come Tuesday, some will win, and some will lose, and the winners will get to contribute to the future of our country. Uh, they, they've cast their vision in their campaigns, and if they get the vote, they'll set out to enact that vision and make that vision a reality. The losers will go back to the drawing board and figure out what didn't stick, what didn't work, and what people didn't respond well to, and uh, they'll try to tweak it, and they'll try to come back next time, and, or maybe they won't come back again. Uh, but today and tomorrow, uh, you can follow the social media, you can follow, uh, watch television. Um, the candidates for upper re-election on every scale and every uh, you know, local, federal level, um, the candidates will be doing their final push to get your votes that they desperately need to win. So it's fitting today that we do one final push for our Jesus 2020 series uh, with a look at Jesus' final campaign stretch to win our hearts. If you haven't been with us, uh, we have been, we've come together the last couple of weeks around this reality because we felt like with the election going on, it was a perfect time to look at Jesus his, on his own campaign when he was trying not to win our votes, but to win our hearts. He showed up with a very specific agenda. He came and blazed a campaign trail as he began talking about the kingdom of God that was coming soon, that was so close that he was ushering in, that he would be building. People didn't know if that was a literal, literal kingdom that was coming on the horizon uh, as the movement got bigger. It seemed that that wasn't the case, but people obviously were intrigued by Jesus. They followed him and he invited them to lay on everything and join his movement. So many of us know the gospel, uh, in, the, in the gospels, we know the, the gospel that Jesus came to die for our sins, which of course is true, but his entire ministry was bigger than that. His entire ministry was laying the groundwork for the salvation that we could receive that would open our eyes, open our hearts, and change our lives. 
He gave us his side on all the important issues of life. And we've went over these important issues the last couple of weeks. And we've heard Jesus' take um, about how we can get the most out of life. How only through him can we ever obtain the opportunities and, uh, that, that we were made for. Only through him can we find abundant life. He gave us his two cents on our two cents, or a little bit more than that, right? He talked so much about money, finances, possessions, knowing that how we handle our money uh, will make a major difference in whether God possesses our whole heart, whether our heart belongs to God. And Jesus taught us how to receive true riches by seeking first God's kingdom. He also talked quite a bit about what keeps us up at night, the things that instill fear in us, the things that we worry over, our health, our security, our safety, the areas of life that, uh, you know, from, from all area, all aspects. Jesus knows how our nature works. And he showed us that even when there are plenty of reasons to be afraid, we don't have to be afraid because we can trust him. He has our hearts. We don't have to fear. We can fear not. So we've kind of come to this conclusion after all these weeks that all of Jesus' teachings reveal that salvation is more than a promise for when we die. It is power so that we may truly and fully live. Yes, indeed, it is a promise for the next life, but it is power that can transform our lives here and now. We've been talking about this in the lead up to our country's election for one specific reason. Whoever gets elected might make our lives better, manage our money well, and drive our enemies away. But they might not. I think that's something we can just, we, we all know, but we don't want to think if, you know, if our guy or our person is running and they win, we think, hey, they're going to do all this. But the reality is there's an asterisk next to all their promises. They may cast a good vision and they may give a good speech and they may have all the pieces in place to make everything as we would want it to be. Whoever gets elected might make that happen. But there's a very good chance that they might not. I mean, there's so much out of their control, right? They can promise, but their ability is limited. As this year has shown, a thriving economy and free reign as Americans can't stop nor blaze past a worldwide pandemic very easily can it whoever is elected may promise they have all the answers but even they know they don't they just hope that circumstances cooperate with their vision and that their efforts can chip away at making some measurable difference and that's all we can ask for in a politician if they're being honest that's what they would tell us but they want to be more bold and more you know uh, affirmative with their words but honestly they just hope that circumstances cooperate and if everything goes perfect which it rarely does but if it does maybe their efforts can chip away and make a difference but we've learned we've learned that we don't have to wait or hope that politicians can make it all work we don't have to wait on them to give us what we really need in our hearts because we've learned that Jesus is already king he's not running he took over he doesn't want your vote he wants your heart his kingdom is here he is waiting on our hearts so that he can start a transformation in us all so many of us know Jesus as Savior but 
Do we know him and have we made him our king? That's the big question. I hope the last few weeks have persuaded us, caused us to re-examine and renew our faith, maybe for the first time pursue a real relationship with Jesus. But, but today, today is my one last effort. Well, not actually, I'll be back tonight and Wednesday and next week. But today is my one last attempt within this conversation to preach this particular thing. And God forbid I sell you anybody but Jesus. It all centers around this opportunity this, that we have to enter into God's kingdom today. Not simply wait. This invitation to participate within its parameters and within its boundaries today. Because yes, there's a heaven awaiting us in our future. But there's a kingdom open to us today. Wide open, inviting every one of you to know what true life is and can be for you and for everyone else. This, this is Jesus's, we're gonna look at a few scriptures beginning in Luke 17. This is a part of Jesus's final push for his movement. If he was a politician like our politicians, this would be the last 100 days of his campaign as his message begins to be very particular, but it also begins to shift from some of the things that he talked about earlier, it becomes very clear that Jesus had not come to be revolutionary like they hoped he would. He had not come to bulldoze Rome off the map. He had not come to reform Judea to its former glory. He had come for something different. And the last half of the three, um, the three first gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the last half of these gospels give us this something different. Something that didn't seem to fit with the vision many of his followers had, but something that turns out to be much greater. In one of his last sermons, he makes it clear that joining his movement could pass by many who are looking for a tangible, uh, concrete kingdom to put their footing on. He signals in our text today that that kind of literal security, that kind of literal security that we often look for in this world, it might be elusive. It may be hard to find in this world. But the insight we get from his teaching actually shows us that his kingdom was far more future-proof the way he was going to introduce it to be and much more inclusive as a result. Now, I want to say something up front before we read this passage. This text is often used to refer to the literal end times. But if you listen closely and you put the context together, Jesus is talking about something that's clearly spiritual in terms of the decisions we make every day. Now, there are things in this text that are similar to a text in Matthew that do indeed refer to the latter days, um, but they are different subjects, and they, but they use similar analogies. So I want to say that up front in case you hear me say something that doesn't really mesh with something you maybe have heard before or thought before. But he puts into context what happens if we miss the invitation or if we dismiss the invitation, if we ignore the invitation that he is giving us for our lives here on earth. He speaks of how easily it is to get swept away by the competition that's out there trying to get our hearts in this life. So I want to read, normally we, we don't read this lengthy of a passage all at once, but I want to read this, I want you to hear it all in one, um, one voice from Luke 17, 20 through the uh, end of the chapter, that'll be verse 37. 
Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, that's what we've been talking about, right? And they want to know, hey, when's it coming? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. As in, you won't be able to really see it. It's not going to be locked at a location for you to go to. And they thought, well, Jesus, you've been talking about a kingdom and your rule and your reign. What do you mean it's not a place we can go? What do you mean it's not a, 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 something we can see? He says, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And he's talking about within, around us, within our hearts, but we're a part of something that we cannot see, that we all together in a community make up. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, so he's talking about his imminent crucifixion. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And this is what Jesus says about the generation that rejects him. As it were in the days of Noah... It will be in the days of the Son of Man. And he's talking about this new kingdom that he has put into motion. They ate and they drank. They married wives. They were given to marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So notice what that verse refers to. The flood sweeps away, literally in the Greek, sweeps away those that did not trust in Jesus. Verse 28, likewise as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. None of those things are sinful, by the way. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, rained fire, brimstone from heaven, and destroyed or literally consumed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, when this new kingdom begins. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed, one taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. And they said, where to, Lord? Where are those taken to? As in these ones that were taken out of the bed, out of the mill, out of the field. Where were they taken? And he says, wherever the body is, there will be eagles or vultures or buzzards there. That's not the most great, the best picture, is it? So you can do some connection in your head and figure out what that refers to. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But a few things here. Jesus makes clear that his kingdom is spiritual. His kingdom is spiritual. One that we can participate in, no matter where we are, what generation we're a part of, we can participate in it, and we can and should defer to it, as in put it first, defer to it no matter what other kingdom we may be temporarily dwelling in. He also makes it clear how tempted we will be, how tempted we will be and distracted we might be by those that try to pin him to a time and place in this life. And here's what I mean. Throughout history, since the time of Jesus, countries and empires have come and tried to claim exclusivity to Jesus. 
They've tried to say that Jesus is with us, not with them. He's here, but he's not there. But Jesus says, my kingdom is everywhere for everyone. So something that we can enter into no matter where we're at, what part of the world we're on, and all that stuff. Also, we, we learn from this text is that often, often our participation in, in our preference for lesser kingdoms, will, not might, will, we just can't avoid it, will compete for our concentration in God's kingdom. Now, this is something that we must be on guard about. It's not saying that our, our role in these lesser kingdoms that we live in, are bad. it's a bad thing. It's just saying that our nature is going to be pulled two ways. We are going to be distracted by lesser things in our attempts to, in our want to, follow God and be a part of his kingdom. Our nature will compete for our concentration. He refers to the days of Noah, the days of Lot. Will we defer to what God is doing or will we be distracted by the things we've got going on? Again, verse 27 and verse, uh, verse 29 don't refer to, or verse 27 and 28, don't refer to sinful things. It just refers to people being busy, distracted, preoccupied by. But notice the message here. This isn't leading up to some teaching on the rapture. Of course, the other passages do that. This teaching is something different. Something that I think is much more pressing. Let me break it down for you. Verse 27, it says in the Greek, the word there is swept away by the flood. Verse 29 says they are consumed by the fire. And then verse 33 gives us this contrast between those invested in earthly things and those invested in kingdom things. The earthly distractions cost life, while a kingdom focus truly preserves life. It may seem like we're missing out, but truly our lives are being preserved. Those that are taken away in this message are not taken anywhere good. I think it clear, but the last few verses paint a pretty gruesome picture as he says those that are taken away are taken to where the buzzards and the vultures gather. Swept away and consumed by this world's anti-kingdom agenda. This world's attempt to distract us and sweep us away and consume us to keep us from getting what God has for us, particularly the peace that God has for his people. You see what Jesus is doing here. He was laying out a powerful truth for us all, for every generation to come. There will be times, there will be times when your generation is not facilitating your participation in God's kingdom. That's just reality. There will be times when your generation is not helping you or not encouraging you or not making it easy on you to participate in the kingdom of God. Your generation may work against you and persuade you to turn right or left, but if we want to truly preserve our lives, if we want to experience all that God has for us, we must endure. We must stay more in tune with the invisible kingdom than we do the lesser temporary, albeit sometimes more pressing ones. Otherwise, our lives may be swept and taken away.
And, and I don't think that's always a literal thing. It means that we're always taken we're always too busy, we're always preoccupied, we're always missing out on what God has because we're too focused on what somebody else has. Now this may be hard for us to hear, but before you dismiss me as trying to send some sort of unpatriotic message, because I'm not, I want to bring this to your attention. Jesus' message was predominantly to Jewish people. We know that, right? Jewish followers. Jesus' Jewish followers must have had the hardest time hearing this, even more so accepting this. And here's why. For generations, Israel was the epicenter, the haven, the destination, the beginning and the end of all of God's earthly activity. Israel had exclusive access and knowledge to God. And they thought their Messiah was supposed to build this up even more so. They thought Jesus was coming together to bring all they had ever been promised into reality. They did not know how to take what Jesus was teaching them. As he was seemingly prying them loose of their earthly allegiance. And from the soil that God had put them on. His words made them feel confused. And maybe it makes us feel confused too. But what he's doing is trying to prepare them, literally, for a post-Israel future. But nonetheless, a future where they could still dwell in and participate in God's kingdom. And would defer to God's kingdom. And it would be easy for them to defer to God's kingdom because their home, their nation, was within decades of being no more. If you'll turn over to Luke 21, Jesus continues this conversation and gets a little more apocalyptic with his language. Luke 21, Jesus takes the disciples to the Temple Mount. And listen to how, and I want you to imagine how difficult it must have been for them to hear this word. They already heard him say that my kingdom's not time and place. It's not physical. It's not going to be here and only for you people. It's going to be for the whole world. You've got to let go of some of those things you've been taught. But now listen to how just specific he is in Luke 21 verse 5 then as some spoke of the temple how it was adorned and with beautiful stones and donations he said these things which you see the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down these beautiful stones of Solomon's temple of Herod's rebuilt temple Jesus says they're going to be destroyed and you have to understand he was talking about the heart of the nation the dwelling place of God. The promises of God were all built and surrounding this place. They ask him, teacher, but when will these things be? What sign will, these, will there be that these things are about to take place? Because they thought if that happens, it's the end of the world. There's no way we can function without an Israel. There's no way we can, we can function without a temple. God lives in this temple. He said, take heed that you be not deceived. For many will come in my name and say, I am he. The time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. Here's what he's saying. You guys think if you lose this thing, your faith will die. But I say unto you, your faith is just beginning, and it's stronger than you realize. Now, Jesus is referring to wars that were about to start after his death and resurrection. There would be wars in and around Jerusalem for a few decades. And in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. The nation of Israel would be wiped off the map. 
and the Jews would be a homeless people for thousands of years. Jesus stood up this day pointing to the heart of Israel, the place where God's presence and promises all rested. He pointed and said the end was nearing, not a new beginning. The destruction was coming, not a restoration. At this point, they're completely dejected. They don't know what to do or what to say. And imagine how hard it would have been for them to hear this. Look down in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know this desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance and all things which are written may be fulfilled. But what are those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days? For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive unto the nations. And Jerusalem will be trodden by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what Jesus refers to in verses 20 through 24 literally took place in 70 AD when Rome under Titus swept in, surrounded the city, sieged it, destroyed the nation around it, and ultimately invaded and destroyed the city. Ever since 70 AD, the world has been living in these so-called times of the Gentiles. Now, in 1948, Israel came back on the map, which tells us that, hey, maybe something's going on. But I, I want to talk about these times of the Gentiles that Jesus refers to. And I, I want to call these times a time of certain unrest. As in there's something we can be certain about, even though there's still a lot of unrest going about. The kingdoms that had been and were to come were not products of human ingenuity and advancements, but are all participants in God's grand plan. And even if the world seems chaotic and events seem to be random, God is actually in control. And Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, y'all, God has something so much bigger going on. You have never been aware of it. And I think this can help us. But let me explain this some more. In the book of Daniel, we get a glimpse and we see how these times of the Gentiles are building. The nation of Israel in those days had been exiled after enjoying centuries of prosperity, but around 600 B.C. it all came to a halt. Babylon the Great had conquered the world and Daniel was one of the Jewish boys taken captive. Daniel became an asset to Nebuchadnezzar because he had a gift of God's revelation as God was given his word. Daniel became a friend of Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that would ultimately be translated and written down in the book of Daniel. He gave it to Nebuchadnezzar to show his authority over him, and Daniel comes and interprets this vision. Now, here's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision of four different kingdoms taking turns at ruling the earth. But what, start, what startles him, his kingdom was the first of the four. The symbols he sees, the history that would unfold soon after, make it clear. These are the kingdoms he saw. He sees the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Greece, and the kingdom of Rome. Babel, Babylon would give way to Persia in 539 B.C. after Nebuchadnezzar's grandson fumbled the ball and lost the kingdom. Persia would give way to Greece after the battle of Guagamela when uh, Alexander the Great killed Darius III. And of course, at the Battle of Corinth, the great Greek Empire would lose to the upstart Roman Empire. But even the Roman Empire wouldn't last forever. In 476 AD, the Goths and the Germans 
barbarians came and sacked Rome, burnt it to the ground, and took over the empire. The fourth kingdom was said to be broken up and fill the rest of the earth, which, of course, the Roman Empire did lead to the world that we know it. History backs this up. But I want want to show you Daniel's confession when he hears this revelation and when he gives it to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Let's say that together. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Who does? God does. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. So we are given an opportunity to understand that all that goes on around us with all the kingdoms of the earth are a part of God's grand plan for the world. What's most remarkable but also undeniable is that, that f- the four major empires that are alluded to each indeed have their turn at the will of world dominance, but in their efforts to chip away, they would actually contribute to a much larger kingdom agenda. To be more specific, here's something we also can't ignore that not even secular history can ignore. Each of these four, across their 800 or so year span of ruling the world, all, as they fight each other, give way to each other, they all keep interfacing and intersecting with this tiny little nation of Israel. All these years later, this ancient prophecy, this proclamation issued by this refugee on the other side of the world echoes through time, and it sends a message to us all that there is a God in heaven who rules and is over and above all the earth, and everything transpires for much bigger reasons than we could ever comprehend. After 70 AD, the Roman Empire got even more powerful. Along the way, it modernized. It connected the known world with language and technology. After its demise a few hundred years later, from its ashes, the separate nations of Europe organized. The Ottoman Empire took over the Middle East. Before long, the Europeans would take boats to discover a new world. And of course, that's how we enter the story. And while it's so easy to get lost and frozen in our own history, we must acknowledge that God has something bigger in the works. Lest we get left out, lest we get swept away and lost in the shuffle and the grind of this life, lest we get caught up in battles and tussles that ultimately are insignificant to God's greater plan. Listen to this glimpse that Daniel sees of the latter days. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. So while we do our thing in our own little corner of the world, in our own little boundaries, with our own little empires and our own little agendas, God is working on something bigger and greater And and Jesus stresses it in this text. You don't want to miss what God is doing. Look at verse 25. He says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars. And he refers to the changing of seasons, the changing of times. On the earth, the stress of nations, perplexity, the sea, the waves roaring. Men's heart will fail them for fear. The expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. 
When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. Now, even now we can look up and we can see that God's redemption is drawing near. Now, verse 29 through 33 is really unique. It refers to a prophecy of Israel regathering as a nation. He just said it was going to end, but he says, hey, not forever. And we live within 100 years of that having taken place. So we even see the opportunity, we get the opportunity to see God's kingdom and their earthly plans begin to join back together and listen to Jesus' final word in verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that the day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That you might escape these distractions set up against us. Overcome the competition that's after our souls, because it is. Now, let me be clear, lest anybody get the wrong message. By no means is this bigger plan suggesting that God does not care, love, and provide for us in our own little pockets of history. Our lives are not merely incidental commodities to Him. Of course, we know he cares. He has a purpose for us. This makes us marvel all the more at the promises in God's word that break away from the eternal narrative to address our little finite stories. We know that and have experienced how God provides and loves and cares for us in deeply personal ways. But all the while, there are bigger stakes at play. Much larger things in motion that we could never fully imagine and we often miss. Hopefully, what this can allow us to do amidst our time of certain unrest is take a different light on our struggles. Hopefully, it will break the tension that often takes a toll on us. Hopefully, every day when we're tempted to fight and worry and divide over temporary and lesser things, hopefully we can remember our future and rely on our kingdom citizenship to carry us through when our kingdoms fail us. While we fight and worry over prosperity and opportunity, wealth and economics, health and security, rather than limiting our hopes and dreams to institutions and establishments that are less than 300 years old, we have documented proof from 2,500 years ago to look through history, past, present, and future with God's perspective. We see what God sees, what God is working on, what He's willing in reality. Something so much bigger, so much more glorious. Now, this doesn't have to and shouldn't dismiss our, us or cause us to feel marginalized, but rather it reveals that God can play chess and checkers at the same time on the same board. God can work the register, cook the food, and wait tables all at once. He can be both sovereign, eternal king, and personal, present savior at the same time. This should cause us to breathe easier on Tuesday and Wednesday. At every crossroads we come to because we're headed to a predetermined destination. Along the way, we get to star in our own movies. We play lead role alongside other fearlessly, fearfully and wonderfully made, specifically positioned stars. 
All of us get our own stories and our own features at the same time. All of us get to matter every day and eternally with significance that has farther implications than we could ever imagine. Yet all of that is on a tiny, tiny, tiny little scale compared to what God is organizing and putting into motion. And while we get distracted and caught up in, invested in, and even as we thoroughly enjoy all that God has blessed us with, God says, Jesus says, if this world ever gets too heavy, if it ever gets overwhelming and overcomes you, we, you, have the ability to step back and let go. You have the opportunity and the freedom to take hold of something greater, somebody greater. You have an invitation, the invitation of a lifetime to see that life is more than wealth, health, and prosperity. More than Can you say that? More than. Life is more than the sum of all that pulls at us, all that's on our shoulders, in our schedules, in our budgets. Life is more. Life is eternal. And here's the good news. And I promise you, this is good news. Ultimately, our lives are not found in our country. They are found in the kingdom of God. All that we do is building towards something that will never be up for grabs. It will never be at risk. It will never be subject to what loss or where. What is to come? Who is to come? Will never be on a ballot left up to man's choice or cooperation. I mean, think about the kingdoms of the old days that all took turns ruling the world. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Think about the citizens of those kingdoms. They never had a say-so in who was going to run over them next. The Jews definitely didn't have a choice in who conquered them. They didn't get to vote. They never had an election day to worry over. They never had one to look forward to. They never knew what was going to happen next. They were at the mercy of whoever was in charge. It was beyond the reach of normal people with normal places in life. And here's the thing. While the establishment of our more perfect union has afforded us an opportunity to, be, to have a say, to agree, to disagree, to support, to dissent, to be free, to show the world that we function better in environments wherein we are treated equally and given value, which is what makes America so great. But we as Americans have never confessed that this value that we've been given, it doesn't come from our laws or our land. Our inscribed and endowed value is not traced back to politicians or policies, but to God. That's what inspired our country and will last way beyond our country. For that matter, if our American ideals change or even are lost, we would never lose our kingdom ideals. And yes, we walk with appreciation for our American soul, but our roots go deeper. So we can lobby and we can ret- or we can retreat from politics. We can be in the middle or we can isolate from the scene. We can know that ultimately the same God who ruled over countries of lesser reproach rules over ours. We are not at the mercy of who is on the ballot, who wins or loses. The God of heaven is in control. 
So we take heart, knowing that our temporary place in history is coexisting with and is alongside of a certain place in eternity. Amen? So where does this leave us? It should leave us at the feet of Jesus. Alongside brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout history. Whether those in communist China who are hiding underground to practice their faith. Those in Muslim countries being beheaded and crucified for theirs. We all come together. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. But isn't it true? As Americans, our hands get a little full, can't they? Don't they? We are so distracted and our attention and our affections are so competed for that we forget what grounds us, don't we? We forget who saved us, don't we? It's hard to let go of those things too, isn't it? We worry and stress over, we put our hopes in lesser things, and at what cost, every time we do it, a little bit of our life is swept away. So Christian, you know what happens when you don't, when we don't rely on politics and policies to prosper and protect and bless us? You know what happens when we don't wait on politics and policies to catch up to what we need? we can realize the true power and peace of our salvation. That's what can happen. Should we not strive for freedom? Programs that enhance life? Of course you should. But when we all disagree and never can arrive at a happy medium, should we wait on government to be perfectly in order to give us what we need? No. Instead of compromising our beliefs and crippling our blessings, seeking short-term standings, for watered-down peace and fleeting doses of power, at the end of the day, we don't have to let politics and temporary, fragile, earthly kingdoms hold our peace and our purpose hostage. We can run past those things, forsake them if we need to. When government allows and cooperates, we should be honorable, but when it stands in the way, we proclaim a better way and fight for a better future. But we don't wait on government to bring us hope. We can come to Jesus now. There's no wait, there's no terms, no expiration date, no risk of loss. In the meantime, Christians, let's resist the urge to tie our passions to mere men. Let's fly a greater flag. Let's put up a greater sign. Let's signal a more certain hope. Lest we find ourselves affirming or denying things we biblically shouldn't, all in the name of winning. Lest we give the world a false image of the faith we claim rests on better promises, eternal promises. Because God is indeed building His kingdom and He's giving us our own brush to contribute to its stones and its walls. What story are you telling? I hope it's one that says Jesus is King. I hope this is the sign outside all of our hearts. If he's not the king of your heart today, he's made a way for you. If you've turned from him to lesser kings, you can turn back. He's made a way for us to get through this life, no matter what comes our way, no matter what you're facing, despair, rejection, loneliness, depression, no matter what is overwhelming you or scaring you, no matter what challenges you or combats you, no matter who is in office, Jesus is able to do He is able to rule the world and heal your heart all at once. 
you won't find a name on the ballot that offers you the promise that Jesus does. A promise that never fades away. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for giving me the strength to campaign for the one and only King that can change our lives, that can save our souls, and that can plug us into a much greater kingdom. Thank you, Father, that you do not forsake us and you don't leave us up to the mercy of politics. Jesus is in control and he is ruling and he has a plan that is in motion And whether we get to see it completed or not, we get to look to it and be a part of it now. So Father, if there's somebody here today and they're really, really, really worried about what happens Tuesday and what if and maybe this and maybe that, Lord, could you give them peace for that? Could you give them freedom from that? Lord, maybe somebody has put all their faith in somebody on a ballot, but today they realize why would they do that when they don't have to wait? Or they don't have to trust in mights and maybes. They can trust in definitely and certainly. Lord, as you've opened your kingdom's doors, I pray that everybody here will not be swept away by lesser promises and by lesser things. Help us to put our eyes on Jesus and trust in him over all else. Because he is the way to true and abundant life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.